I've talked a few times in the past about how frugal I am, or other people might just say I'm cheap, but I've had great luck with lawnmowers. And quite a few years ago, I found a lawnmower at a yard sale for 25 bucks, and I ended up using it. I had it for about four years. It always ran great. It finally broke down on me, and uh, I had to get another one. I found another one at a yard sale for $35, and I had it for over six years. And when we moved down here to Nashville, it ended up getting stolen. So I needed a new lawnmower. And I looked in the paper, and I saw that there was one for sale for $25. And uh, I called the guy up, and I said, man, will you hold it for me? I'll come down and buy it. And he said, sure thing. So. I drove about 30 miles south of Nashville and went out to this farmer's house. It's out in the middle of nowhere. And when I got there, he was a nice guy and he invited me into his garage. And I looked around on the walls of his garage and everything was immaculate. All of his tools were in the right place and it was obvious that he was one of these guys that just knows how to fix everything. He takes care of everything, does all the preventative maintenance. And I thought, man, this is gonna be a good lawnmower. So I bought it and I brought it home. And this is the best lawnmower I've ever had. I paid $25 for it. It always runs. At the beginning of every spring, it starts on the first pull every year. I had five years in a row of it starting on the first pull. So the other day I got the lawnmower out. It had been a long winter. It's the coldest winter we've had since I lived here. And I was just thinking, man, is it going to start? You know, those of you who tried to start lawnmowers know that, you know, sometimes it's not that easy. But uh, I got it out, pulled it outside, dusted it off a little bit, made one pull, and the thing fired right up. So six years in a row, I'm feeling pretty good about my lawnmower. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Sid Griffin. Sid is a singer and a songwriter, and you might know him from his band, The Long Riders or The Cole Porters. He's also an author and a journalist. He's written quite a few books, and he's also uh, had quite a few articles appear in Q, Mojo, and you hear his voice sometimes on BBC Radio. But you can find out everything you need to know about Sid at SidGriffin.com. Sid lives in London, but he was recently in Nashville making a record with my buddy Tom Yutz. And uh, he had a little bit of time the day before he flew out, and we got together somewhere. I'm not really sure where we were, somewhere in Donaldson, at a place that he was staying. And we had a really nice chat. Here's Sid Griffin. A brilliant place. There were several brilliant places downtown, which is now New Lou. And Bardstown Road, which is the hipster part of town, where my mother grew up next to, down the street from Hunter Thompson, one of her childhood buddies. But um, 
there was a place called the Storefront Congregation. And downtown on Main Street, there was another gig. I saw John Lee Hooker down there. Anyway, Storefront Congregation had people like Monroe and Ralph Stanley and uh, uh, Bluegrass Alliance and then the early days of Newgrass Revival. And I was too young to drink alcohol, and I was thrown out of the Storefront Revival several different nights. Not physically, but like they knew my name, and they'd say, young Griffin, get out of here. You know, this is. Uh, I remember once the lady grabbed me and said, I understand. What was her name? Oh, they went on to run the Rudyard Kipling. That's another venue in Louisville. She grabbed me and said, now, now, uh, Seed, S-E-E is how she pronounced Sid. Seed, now you listen to me, Seed Griffin. I know your mother. And um, not only will you get in trouble, she was explaining to me, the first fine's like $500 for having a minor in here. And the second fine's like two or $3,000 for the tavern having a minor with a beer, something horrible. And she said, the third time we're caught serving a minor they take away our liquor license and the game is over and i felt terrible and said okay i won't come back and i didn't but they were fantastic gigs in louisville at the time i mean fantastic did you get to meet um like bill monroe or ralph stanley yes. any of those people that yes played and yes yes i met uh, monroe and shook his hand and uh he did a thing this is legendary amongst some of my friends that well there were two of them that were there and remember it he, uh, the, the thing was over, uh, this is a, in Louis, a different venue, but, um, the, the performance was over Otis and I had only been to the things that I'd told you about before. I'd been to local teen hops at the YMCA in the, in the high school, which everyone in America knows what I'm talking about. And I had been to proper 3000 seat gigs for the Allman brothers kind of thing or egging the stooges and, uh, which I, who I saw and didn't understand. I saw the MC five. I'm an old dog. And uh, But they just did their gig and went away. Now, when Monroe finished playing, and he had a big crowd in this, where the heck was it? The Red Barn in Louis, at the University of Louisville campus, I think? I think it was. Anyway, when Monroe finished, I was standing there talking to some of the guys and uh, my friend Steve Holland, and he was there. He'll back this up. And the next thing I knew, he said, turn around slowly. I went, what? I thought there was like a, you know, a bad guy or an old girlfriend. So he said, turn around slowly. I turned around slowly, and there was Big Mon. And I'm 6'2", and I distinctly remember looking up. He had to be 6'3", because I would distinctly remember I looked up at him a little bit. And Monroe, uh, anyway, the long, my father said, if you see Monroe, you got to say this, because my dad's from down western Kentucky, just about 22 miles from where Big Mon's from. He said, you tell Monroe that uh, you shake his hand firmly and look him in the eye and say that you're from western, you're western Kentucky people too. And so I looked at Monroe, who I knew didn't like long hairs, and I, I, uh, he, he looked at me at a glance, and I sort of grabbed his hand. I'm sure you've done this once or twice at a social engagement. Grabbed his hand, shook it firmly, and said, my name is Sid Griffin. My people are from Davis County, Kentucky, which is next to his Ohio County. And uh, it's a pleasure to meet you, Mr. Monroe. And I'm burning eye contact, just staring at his eyes, and he's looking back at me. And he had Kenny Baker with him. I distinctly remember Kenny Baker, and I distinctly remember the banjo player, who I later found out was Bob Black, although I didn't know it at the time. And anyway... Monroe took my hand and listened to my spiel, and I had hair past my shoulders like a, oh, what's that fella? The Loggins and Messina kind of look, you know. Anyway, and Monroe took my hand, and he started squeezing it harder and harder, and I, I was letting go, because you shake a man's hand, you let go. And he, Monroe took my hand, he wouldn't let go, and not only was he not letting go, he was squeezing it really hard to the point of unpleasantness, and he just kept squeezing to the point of pain, and he was taking my hand and going up and down, so... Is supposed to just shake hands with like a four inch 
motion up and down. He's now taking my hand like two feet up and down the air. And, and it's starting to hurt. And Kenny Baker's starting to giggle. And Bob Black's rolling his eyes. And my friend Steve's like, what's going on? And, he, and Monroe looked at me and said, well, it's a pleasure to meet you too, Sue. <laughs> and then he let go of my hand. And Baker laughed. And Bob Black sort of looked at me like, I'm sorry. You know, He looked at me like apologetically because Bob Black was a young man. And he looked at me apologetically. My friend Steve laughed. And the other guy with us laughed. Anyway, and, and my hand hurt. I mean, he really hurt my hand. I said, okay, nice to meet you, Mr. Monroe. That was it, calling me Sue. That's the only time I met him face to face. And he did he didn't I made it sound a little more malicious than it was, Otis. He had a twinkle in his eye. He wasn't, you know, he was hurting me, but not like breaking bones. He had a twinkle in his eye. He knew he was being funny. You know, which he was. What happened was uh, I had heard from the summer of '76 about something called punk rock. And I didn't know what it was because the the uh, if someone had said it's like the New York Dolls and things of this nature, I would have understood immediately. And I even had the Ramones' first album already, but I didn't quite. You kept reading about it as an English thing, and the New York scene was considered sort of separate for some way. And uh, long story short, uh, there was a magazine given away free in uh, all the uh, hip. Uh, record stores and chain record stores at the time, like School Kids or Peaches or whatever. And I was at Karma Records, uh, which people in Indiana and Kentucky will remember. It was a chain, but it was good. It was a good one. And they had this magazine called Phonograph Record out of Los Angeles. And oddly enough, a lot of the writers there, like Ken Barnes and Rodney Bingenheimer, became friends of mine later when I moved to L.A. But at the time, I was just a 20-year-old, 21-year-old kid. Greg Shaw, the late, great Greg Shaw of Bomp Records, did become my dear friend, wrote an article. He'd been to England on a visit, and he saw the one, went to the 100 Club and saw the Sex Pistols. And he wrote about them and said, uh, they're 19, 20 years old. They're not very good. But they go on stage, and with all the uh, heart and soul and effort they can muster, he said they were, the key words were, he said they were good, in the fact that they gave their heart and soul to the music, but they didn't have chops. And he also said that they were young. And I thought to myself, well, hell, I can do that. That's what my band sounds like. We're not good, but we give 100% on stage and we don't take any guff off anybody. And there was a picture of them. And I thought these guys, you know, just like me with shorter hair. Anyway, so that inspired me to go to L.A. So I went out to L.A., drove across the country by myself in October 1977, by myself, in a cheap battered Chevy Chevette with a U-Haul, the smallest U-Haul trailer in the back, filled with my possessions. It must have broke my mother's heart. And uh, I drove across America by myself, which I know this sounds stupid, but I recommend anybody doing that, any American. In fact, any, any foreigner that's interested in the United States, drive across America by yourself, no family, and get off the interstate and goof around and go see things that you want to see, which I did. I took... You know, it's, you could drive across America. You could get from Louisville to L.A., and I'm sure four days resting comfortably if you wanted to. And I, uh, I mean, I don't, I just took, I think I took nine days and I went to here and I went to there and I went to Austin, I, you know, just for the hell of it. And I looked at things and went to the Grand Canyon and just looked at the Grand Canyon. It was just stunning to see America, you know, with not, not from a train or airplane five miles in the air. It was just amazing to see America up close. And I pulled into LA and I pulled over in Pasadena to get some gas and something to eat. 
that Kentucky plates, and two great things happened. This uh, very, very obese uh, Latin American, I don't know if he's Mexican-American or Nicaraguan or whatever, but he was, came over with a big grin, grossly overweight, and he said, hey, 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 do you know Davey? Do you know Davey? And I said, what? I just got to town. I, don't, I hadn't met anybody. I'd been in town, you know, pulled into Pasadena to get some gas. Didn't know anybody. He said, do you know Davey? You must know Davey. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know who, what you're talking about. And he was, had a twinkle in his eye, too. And I said, who's Davey? And he goes, Davey, Davey Crockett. You must know Davey Crockett. And I said, why would I know Davey Crockett? He says, because you got Kentucky license plates. And I said, hey, listen, Davey Crockett's a Tennessean. And they, he died in Texas at the Alamo. You got the wrong guy. Kentucky is Daniel Boone. And the guy, the Mexican dude or wherever he was, you know, Guatemalan, he smiled, absorbed that information, waited about a second and said, Hey, hey, do you know Daniel? Do you know Daniel? Do you know Daniel Boone? Do you, know, you must know Daniel Boone. And I just said, what? So I got out, I got the petrol and I got out. And I remember I've been in LA, nothing. I mean, you know, I got in there, it's late in the afternoon. And it's a Sunday and I pull over, it's getting, start at night. And Rodney on the Rock came on on KROQ. I spun the dial from left to right. I started on the left on the FM dial. I pulled over to get some, a burrito or something. I don't know. I haven't made a soul yet. You know, I'm not even in Hollywood yet. I'm, I'm, I'm still like 20 miles east of the Pacific, whatever that is, or 15 miles east of the Pacific. I'm somewhere near Pasadena. I get a pull over, get a burrito now, and I put the dial on the left, Otis. And this is worth hearing. And I moved it to the right, slowly, hitting each station. And of the pop music rock stations, they were exactly what I thought. The softer ones, the big man of the moment was Jackson Brown. And the more guitar heavy metal ones, the big band of the day was Led Zeppelin. Now, obviously, on the Jackson Brown station, you you heard others of, of, of Jimmy Buffett or Joni Mitchell and all that kind of thing. And obviously on the on the on the metal stations, the more guitar Marshall Stack stations, you heard Aerosmith and whoever else was popular. But mainly it kept hearing Jackson Brown, Led Zeppelin. And I finally got to the right. And right when I got almost to the end of the dial on the right, I heard Rodney Bingenheimer. In that asthmatic voice of his, I don't know if you know him, but he's not a healthy guy. Little Rodney, sorry, Rodney, that sounds belittling. Rodney said, "Hey, everybody, the, uh, get your cassette players ready and put it in a blank cassette, because I'm gonna, I'm gonna play all three uh, uh, Sex Pistols records. I'm gonna play all three A sides in a row, and then I'm gonna flip them and play all three B sides in a row. So the six Sex Pistols songs they're out on the market now, and you can't find." Because no one in America has released him. Huh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna play him right now, and he did. So for, I'd never heard the Sex Pistols. I'd only read this article by Greg Shaw. So I sat there and ate this burrito, and drank like a root beer, and heard all. I heard uh, what would the A sides be? They'd be Anarchy in the UK, God Save the Queen, and I think, I think uh, Holidays in the Sun. Is that right? Is that the third single? Maybe that's wrong. Uh, and then the B-sides are something like Satellite, Bodies, and um, the cover of No Fun. That's close. And that's the first time I heard the Pistols, and I was just blown away. I mean, I was just blown away. And uh, then I, I moved uh, – anyway, that's the end of that. That's my first day in LA. I moved on into uh, a distant acquaintance that I hardly knew and slept on his floor for a few nights and then got involved with just some terrific people, you know, the people I met – the people that later became the Go-Go's at the time, they were the misfits. I met a guy who slept, slept on a sofa at the Rock and Roll Orphanage. He didn't have a room. He's going to be a cartoonist, and we all loved this guy. He's a bumpkin kind of guy, but we all loved him. And he had the last laugh on us. He became Matt Groening, who did The Simpsons. 
you know, we had no, he just said, I'm going to be a cartoonist. I really like cartoons. We're like, you're going to be a cartoonist. What, you know? And uh, Dwight Yoakam came on the scene a few years later. He wasn't there immediately when, when I was, but uh, I just, I just fell in with the right people. And a lot of guys that went on to be uh, members of, uh, oh, the Knack, or certainly the Bangles, who I, I knew extraordinarily well shared a house with. The Paisley Underground crowd. I just fell in with it. So it was a really great move. The Rodney Bingenheimer um, documentary is one of my favorites. I saw it on a rainy London night, Otis, Mayor of the Sunset Strip, the Rodney Bingenheimer documentary. And it made me kind of homesick for LA because I had a great time out there. And uh, it made me realize in a way how great Rodney is because he's slight and, and, and not exactly Mike Tyson. It's easy to dismiss him, but uh, this is someone that you may not know this. He, Greg Shaw, the aforementioned Greg Shaw and the late great Michelle Meyer, who died of bone cancer in 1986 or early 87 came down to, she booked the Starwood, the rival of the whiskey a go, go came down from the same neighborhood in, um, I believe it was San Jose together. They were rock nuts up there. But at the time they came down in 65, the birds ruled the roost. And the San Francisco Bay Area thing hadn't really taken off. So the three of them came down as a uh, trio. I don't know if they were in the same van. They all came down together. They are great mates up there. And Greg already had the Brian Jones bowl haircut. And Rodney already had the Brian Jones bowl haircut. And... Uh, and Michelle came down. Michelle started dating one of the birds, and uh, Rodney immediately got a job. He would do anything for a gig, and he worked for Sonny and Cher for a while. He's friends with Cher to this second. And Rodney is on the, uh, oh, come on, Davy Jones of the Monkees. He's the stand-in double for Davy Jones of the Monkees. When they have a shot where there's the back of, of Davy Jones, and he's being spoken to by Nesmith or Dolans or something, that isn't Rodney. I mean, that isn't, Mick, that isn't Davy Jones, the late Davy Jones. It's Rodney because they're the exact height, weight, and all that stuff. And so Rodney, and then of course he's in rock and roll high school. Rodney has an amazing uh, rock and roll history for a guy with just a humble record show out there in L.A. I mean, he's, he knows everybody, and uh, he's kind to everybody. And I, th I think the world of him. I think that's my favorite. When people ask me what my favorite music documentary yeah. is, I think Mayor of the Sunset Strip. And I'll, I'll, let me interject something else about Mayor of the Sunset Strip. Uh Michelle Meyer used to always say, uh, rock and roll is for, rock and roll takes everybody in, she used to say, the late Michelle Meyer. I'd say, what are you talking about, Michelle? And she'd say, you remember in high school when some people would be cool enough to have a car and some people would be really cool and they have a sports car? Well, all these people that you're talking about, Sid, Greg Shaw or myself or Rodney Bingenheimer, or this guy here, or that guy that plays bass, or this lady that wants to be a singer, we were the ones that there wasn't ever room in the car for. There was room for the quarterback. There was room for the editor of the high school yearbook. There was room for the handsome guy. There was room for the sexy, pretty girl in class. There was room for the head cheerleader. There was room for the, the, you know, the social lady that you had to go to her parties and drink beer. You were a loser. There was never room for us. I thought, my God, she's right. Rock and roll takes in people like us. You know, that's who, there wasn't room in the car for at the end of high school. You either walked home or took the, yellow bus home with all the little kids. And I thought, so that, they, they were great, great times, great people. Michelle Meyer was so nice. This I just want to say this out loud, whether you use it or not. 
that she took in at the Starwood. You'd go to the Starwood, and she would have all these guys like Doug Engel, the guy that wrote Inagata De Vita, and then didn't know to sign the publishing deal. So, so Green and Stone, the manager of the Springfield, they got his publishing on that. Sold $17 million. She took in all these people that had done bad deals and had hits and all. So you'd go see Michelle at the Starwood to talk about a gig, and there would be all these rock and roll guys and girls that had done something but that it screwed up the business because in 65 through 68, 9, it was really brutal. You know, then people started getting managers that were heavy. And I just, they were a great crowd, Rodney, Michelle. And that mayor of the Sunset Strip really brought home that he's, he was one of the guys, I'm sure in high school people thought he was a twerp and a buffoon and he's having the, the hip life and the fun. And I, I think that's great. Or as Rodney once put it to me, our, we were talking about this and Bingenheimer looked at me, Otis, and said, sit. I said, what? He says, you know, once at a party, because Rodney doesn't think he's a big deal. He's not vain at all. He, he doesn't want to sell you a script or a song. He just likes to be where the fun is. He's a sweet guy. Rodney looked at me and said, Sid, I said, what? He said, Did you know once at a party, Elvis Presley up in the Hollywood Hills grabbed me by the elbow and said, come on, Rodney, I want you to meet my friend Frank Sinatra. And Elvis at a party that he invited Rodney to invited, uh, it, sorry, introduced Frank. I'd like you to meet a good friend of mine. This is Rodney Bingenheimer. And Rodney said, I actually stood, I actually stood between Frank Sinatra and Elvis Presley. And I said, what did you do? He says, well, I, I was polite and said hi and nice that. And at one point, I think I drooled. <laughs> so Rodney had his revenge. You didn't see those other people in high school hanging out with Sinatra and Presley. The, the, the English and, and the British don't have a great country and Western tradition, as I think you know because you do well in Ireland, Otis Gibbs. The Irish do. The Irish embrace country and Western, and they have a, some of them have a very soft, middle-of-the-road version of country and Western. But nonetheless, the people on the Emerald Isle get it. It's in their DNA. The Von Griffin theory of popular music is the Celtic peoples get blues and country and Western more than the Anglo-Saxon people do. That's a very broad statement, but I believe with all my heart and soul. Irish fiddling is about two steps away from Kenny Baker fiddling with Bill Monroe. Yeah, that's the way I look at it. Um, however, oddly enough, on the continent of Europe, where the British Eighth, Ar where the American Eighth Army was the Army of Occupation, or really where the Yanks were, period, there's bluegrass pockets of fanaticism. For instance, the Czech Republic is bluegrass a go-go. They go, and they make great instruments in the Czech Republic too. Banjos, fiddles, mandolins, fantastic. And they're cheap. Not cheap. They're inexpensive. They're not cheap. They're well-made. And Northeastern Italy, Trieste in that area. Italy's actually got some good bluegrass bands. Go figure that one. And uh, Bavaria, where the Yanks were. So wherever we were, you'll find pockets of rhythm and blues and bluegrass. And I mean people that can play, like in flat-out pick. But across Europe, you go to some places like Spain, they don't know who it is. They go to the gig because it's Sid Griffin's Cole Porters, C-O-A-L, folks. And they go to the Cole Porters because they know I'm there. And they trust it'll be a good show. But do they know about bluegrass? No. So it just depends where you are. And, and also, they get really, you know, protective about it. You didn't play this right. You didn't play that right. Bill Monroe would never have done that. Kind of that bluegrass police. But You mentioned the Czech Republic. Whenever I'm in the Czech Republic, I love 
looking for the Czech country music on the radio. Fantastic stuff. You'll hear someone with an extremely deep voice with this huge Czech accent singing Blue Kentucky Girl. This is a man. Yeah. And uh, I just love that. And I also, they have. Uh, I was there with Billy Bragg, name dropper that I am. I was there with Billy Bragg but, uh, when they had the Velvet Revolution. We were the first. Billy Bragg, Cole Porters, and some other act that's escaped me in the sands of time were the first people behind the Iron Curtain to do the Satellite Nations. Yes, Billy, uh, the, you know, Elton John and the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, Billy Joel playing in Red Square. But and I'm talking about Hungary and Czech Republic and Bulgaria, Romania, and East Germany and all that. We were the first people to go there and play for these guys when they had, you know, five months, six months earlier, we were under the communist yoke. And uh, it was amazing. One of the, I owe Billy Bragg a lot for that tour. It was just, uh, it was amazing. I met a man that was thrown in jail by the Nazis. World War II ended. He had about two years of freedom, and then the commies threw him in jail. Amazing. And he, he was like seven years in a Nazi prison and about 18 years in a commie jail. And I just thought, with a two-year break in between, and this is in Czech Republic. I think Budvar, where the beer comes from. Amazing stories. Amazing stories. I got a million of them. Did people feel comfortable coming up and talking to you guys? Very, because we were very. The Yanks were very popular then. I remember, uh, I used to be a big, big drinker, and I went to the uh, the Budweiser, the Czech Budweiser, not the Anheuser Busch in St. Louis. I went to the Czech Budweiser, and uh, man, it was good beer. I got to tell you, and it's inexpensive relative to the states. And they give this big stun. And a long story short was. One, all white people, mainly men, but a few ladies, but mainly white men, including me, mainly Czech, but a few Yanks and a few Brits, drinking and uh, having a great time. There's a, a accordion fiddle combo in the corner playing Czech folk music. And one lone, solitary, in his khaki dress uniform, not his blue uniform but for parading, but the, 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 the off-duty uh, dark olive green with khaki pants uniform. One... African-American U.S. soldier popped his head in the door looking for a nice place to have a beer. And I was two seconds before saying, I'm a Yank, come on in. And the Czechs went nuts saying, American, American, come in, come in, come in. And this, they sat him down at the head of the table I was on because these long European tables. And he had about eight huge stands of beer in front of him before he could move. And he said, what do I do now? And I said, well, just... Because he can't drink that. I mean, it's like, you know, it was great. You could take a bath in some of those steins. They were so big. And he said, what do I do now? And I looked at him and said, we'll all sit with you. And for Pete's sake, can you manage two of them? He says, yeah, I can make maybe a third. And that's it. And he had at least eight in front of him. I mean, everyone wanted to buy the American soldier a drink. <laughs> and I said, just make a go of it and keep smiling. And he said, I can do that. And so he drank and you know, met this guy. And it was a great one of the greatest nights of my life, the way they treated that soldier with warmth and, and dignity and pounding him on the back and they didn't speak any English. America, America, Coney Island, America, baseball. I, I used to write for Q and Mojo all the time and after about 12 or 14 years I've, I've kind of put it on the back burner. Uh, my wife, uh, my wife gloriously became pregnant late in the day. I'm not a young man. And so I've been mainly taking care of my son these last three years. I'm still working on the Dylan book. And I periodically write, no pun intended of the word periodical, I periodically write for, for some magazines. But I've toned it back. Um, I, I'm, I've been writing, Otis, for the B BBC World Service a lot and uh, doing radio specials for them because I've enjoyed that more. I mean, how many times can I uh, 
review records and things like that and books. I mean, I, I did over 60 reissues. Let me put this into focus. And I did a reissue of Phil Oaks in 1994-95 for Universal, right? And about uh, 2009, they said, can you do a Phil Oaks compilation? I said, yeah, I did one. They said, it's time for another. So here, you know, I'm reissuing reissues. And I, I, I'd, I'd reissued so many. I'd done the compilation and liner notes for so many albums by Mike Nesmith and Phil Oaks, uh, uh, Ronnie Lane. I did his catalog. And, uh, oh, I can't even think. There's so many. I did 60 reissues for mainly in mainly Europe, but some here. Bill Monroe. I did one from Monroe. I did a great one of Hank Williams' Obscurities. Sold real well. But, I mean, I just, you know, I had to get away from that. So I've, I'm, I'm, I'm more enjoying writing for the BBC now, who uh, let me have my hand to do late night specials on the radio. Don't they treat you like the the resident? Yeah, they do. The resident here gets sit on the radio, yeah, like a historian or an expert. They or? like my, my one of my friends said one thing they like about you is you can yak the tail off a donkey, and you also have a good accent for the beep because everyone else doesn't have your accent. Once a uh, Frequently, when somebody dies, that's a slice of Americana. They grab me. My favorite story here is this is a good one. When Johnny Cash, God rest his soul, died, they they uh, found me in Nottingham, and uh, I was at sound check where the heck I was doing. They said, "You got to go to BBC Nottingham now. We need an American to comment on the importance of Johnny Cash's death, culturally speaking." So I went to BBC Nottingham, and they slapped me in the studio, and uh, they had the news at three or four, or whatever it was. And the lady comes on to do like a five-minute thing. And at the end, she goes, and she's talking with her head and shoulders on, on the screen. And she goes, and then above her head, of course, is a Johnny Cash picture, kind of small, that says Cash underneath it. She goes, and sadly, we end on this note. Uh, in America this morning, the great Johnny Cash, the famous country and western singer, turned a TV entertainer, died in, in the United States. He was an iconic American figure uh, to two generations of, of music fans. And musician Sid Griffin is here with us in the studio to explain to you Cash's uh, importance. So they gave me like 45 seconds to say how important Cash was. Well, my, I told I called home and told my daughter, who was then four years old, you got to turn on the TV, turn on the TV and put Esther in front of it. So Esther was sat in front of the TV and was bored watching the news. And, it, and suddenly Cash's picture above the talking head of this newsreader is replaced by my picture. And suddenly I go live and cover the whole screen of the TV. And my daughter jumps up in the air in excitement and says over and over, Daddy's in the box. Daddy's in the box. <laughs> she said it like eight times. And my wife and one of her friends who was just hanging out having a cup of coffee said they about died of hysterics. Not Daddy's on TV or Daddy's, you know, Daddy's in the box. Daddy's in the box. And they said we've never seen Esther more excited in her life. So that's the kind of thing I do for the BBC. I appreciate you sitting down. I have no idea where we're at, but uh, somewhere in—is this East Nashville? No, this is kind of Donaldson area. South? Is that South? Yeah, East Nashville is really close to in town. I think no, this isn't South. We're we are east of Nashville, but um, I'm not sure where exactly we are. Casa de hit song, I think. All right, well, I'm glad to be here. I appreciate you chatting with me. Otis, it's been a pleasure to yak. You know I can talk. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Sid for taking the time to chat with me while he was in Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Sid at SidGriffin.com. 
If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.